Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andrew Ruiz about his new book, Eating to Learn, Learning to Eat, The Origins of School Lunch in the United States, published in 2017 by Rutgers University Press. Andrew Reese is a historian of medicine and a learning scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of Eating to Learn, as well as numerous articles on the history of food, nutrition, and health, learning analytics, and STEM and medical education. So Andrew explores the origins of American school meal initiatives to explain why it was, and to some extent has continued to be, so difficult to establish meal programs that satisfy the often competing interests of children, parents, schools, health authorities, politicians, and the food industry. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, since reading your book, I've had lots of conversations with friends and colleagues about their memories and experiences with school lunch, as I'm sure you've had many of these conversations too. Uh, What was lunch like when you were in school? What was the best thing to eat? (laughs) So I... uh... I grew up in the 80s, so the, the sort of height of the Reagan era, sort of ketchup as a vegetable, a styrofoam lunch tray, school lunch era. So uh, there, there was there was very little to recommend school lunches at that point in time. Um, but I definitely have very strong uh, memories and very clear memories of of my school lunches. So uh, among the things that that really stood out, you know, I had a milk allergy and and food allergies were not as as common at that point. And so, you know, I was like the kid in the school who couldn't get like the little carton of milk that came with with uh, every meal and instead would get like a water or juice substitute. Um, I remember uh, these little like um, square chocolate cakes with just like the white icing that, that would be there like once a week as the dessert. And, and, you know, we would always look forward to the days when, when you would get that. Um, uh, but I also remember things that the, you know, the school would do sort of, um, separate from the formal lunch program. So I remember, um, I grew up in the Bay area and, uh, at once a year there would be an it's it day and it's, it's where this, um, uh, these two oatmeal cookies with ice cream between them. they're covered in chocolate and they're only made at like one factory in the Bay area. And so it's it like this hyper local food that we would get like, you know, once in the spring when it started getting hot outside. And, and like, we would look forward to this for weeks cause they were so good. And they were, you know, probably like 3000 calories in one of these little ice cream sandwiches, but they were like the most delicious things you could imagine. Um, so, yeah, so, so I, you know, I think school lunch is, is, is fascinating because, so many of us, you know, uh, for better or for worse, have these just incredibly vivid memories of what it was like to go to school and, and be fed in school. Yeah. So so what is it that led you to this topic of school lunch as a historian of science, medicine and technology? Where do you see it fitting into those that kind of intersection of those three things? 
Yeah, so interestingly, I I never actually set out to uh, you know become a historian of nutrition or or really even to to do a project on school lunches. Um, you know, I, I trained as a historian of public health primarily, um, and up to the point where I was starting this project, had done mostly work on the history of infectious disease. Um, but at the time, this is this is a little more than ten years ago now. Um, I was sort of, you know, thinking a little bit about, uh, you know, this sort of disconnect between the fact that historians of public health were focusing pretty heavily on infectious diseases, um, but public health as it was practiced, you know, that in the early 21st century was uh, really moving um, more towards a focus on um, uh, health issues that weren't uh, infectious. And at that point in time, you know, tobacco cessation and obesity were the two uh, biggest um, sort of emphases in public health work. Not, not uh, you know, not that they weren't still uh, doing a lot in, in the infectious disease context, but um, but those, you know, uh, those other classes of disease started becoming more and more common. And I, I wanted to know a little bit about, you know, when that started, when health departments, for example, started really paying attention to things like nutrition. Um, and so I started doing a little bit of, of background uh, work on it and sort of struggling to find, you know, there wasn't a lot of historical work on it. There wasn't even in terms of sort of primary sources, there wasn't a whole lot out there that I could really find, uh, you know, that wasn't, you know, that was more than just a few decades old, um, except that I kept seeing references to school lunches. Um, and I think like a lot of people, I've always thought of school lunches as predominantly a social welfare program, right? This is a, a program that's designed to provide food for kids uh, who really need it, right, to prevent hunger and, and sort of gross malnourishment. I've never really thought about them as a public health program. And this is very common in, in the public health world, where a lot of the things that start out as public health programs very quickly just become services, things like garbage collection or, you know, water purification, street cleaning, that kind of thing. I'll start out as public health programs, but then they, they become uh, so integral to a particular way of living that they then sort of spin off into their own thing. So as I realized that, I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. Not only are school lunches sort of the initial uh, entree of public health uh, into sort of the nutrition world, um, at least in the U.S. And, and as far as I can tell, in many countries, um, but they're not even really thought of as public health programs in, in the way that they used to be. So I wanted to learn more about that, and that was sort of the uh, the beginnings of the project. And and from there, I just sort of went down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I think most 21st century readers probably grew up with federally mandated, federally funded school lunch programs, so that it almost seems like natural or inevitable to us that schools ought to feed students uh, at least a midday meal. But what I really kind of took away from your book is that that really isn't the case, right? There were lots of ideologies and philosophies that support school lunch that, that didn't have to turn out that way. Um, so, so maybe rehearse some of those for us. What are some of those philosophies that support school lunch? Where does the idea come from that the school and the state bear responsibility for food and nutrition and lots of other health services, uh, in addition to kind of the reading, writing, arithmetic? Yeah. So, I mean, at the core of any uh, sort of public health um, question is, uh, as you mentioned, this question of responsibility. How much uh, should a society, a community, 
uh, a government uh, take responsibility for doing things for its people and how much of that responsibility should just fall on the shoulders of individuals. And at any given time, in any given context, this is something that is under sort of uh, continual negotiation. Um, in the case of, of school lunches or really just any kind of provision of food or milk uh, in, in schools, this uh, was sort of one of the first times that um, uh, this issue came up in the context of schooling. So, so, so you know, uh, in the 19th century and in basically every earlier iteration of, of schooling, um, education was in its most restricted sense about uh, transmitting um, knowledge to to children. Um, and, you know, that was sort of the extent of it. The schools uh, really didn't, didn't um, you know, outside of things like boarding schools, didn't take any responsibility for feeding children, for clothing them, for housing them, for providing them with any of the materials that they uh, might need. They provided only the instruction itself. But towards the late 19th century, um, a few things happened that kind of refocus attention on schools and that really changed the role of schooling in um, American society. And so one of them is, uh, you know, the rise of compulsory education, um, which starts in about the mid-19th century. And, and um, by World War One, basically every state in the Union requires some form of compulsory education. So that changes the calculus a little bit. Once you require that children attend schools, you have to think a little bit more about what uh, what of their needs the school is going to is going to attend to, and what is still going to remain the responsibility of the home. And this is happening at at precisely the time that um, opposition to child labor is increasing, and the sort of intense um, expansion and um, uh, development of cities is happening and sort of industrialization is kind of peaking. And so all of these things are sort of happening at once. And it's, it sort of radically shifts the, the role of, of schools and society. And this means that then there are various uh, people and various groups who are going to have different uh, takes on how that school should evolve. Uh, so people who um, uh, really uh, adopted a kind of rights perspective on things like um, uh, food and nutrition, uh, really thought that you couldn't compel students to attend school if you weren't also going to provide for some of their basic needs, like their need to eat, um, you know, at some point during the, the school day. Um, uh, you know, other other people argued for school meals on economic grounds, this idea that, well, if we're going to pay to educate kids, we should make sure that they can actually take advantage of that education, which might mean uh, providing some basic nutritional um, support. Um, there were public health arguments um, that, you know, one of the things that happens um, in this time period is that medical inspection starts in schools, which is really one of the first times that we get massive amounts of health information about kids. And they're nowhere near as healthy as had typically been assumed. You know, kids are typically, at least school age kids, are typically the sort of healthiest uh, members of a, of a given population. And um, school medical inspections were revealing huge amounts of preventable health problems in kids. And so a lot of people, you know, argued that uh, we really needed school lunches because um, it was going to address a lot of public health concerns that if kids were better nourished, then they would be more resistant to infectious diseases, they'd be less likely to, to have developmental uh, problems and, and, a, and a whole host of other things. 
Um, but on the other side, there were still uh, plenty of people arguing that, you know, no, the school as an as an agent of the state, um, it, it wasn't their job to to feed kids. That was still the job of, of parents of the home. Um, and, you know, we you know, already we don't expect schools to provide clothing for kids or to provide shelter. So uh, why why should food be considered, a, you know, a sort of special category and that kind of thing? So this is a debate that really um uh, uh, grew up in sort of the late 19th century and, and really intensified over the first two decades of the of the 20th century. Yeah. So as those those lunch problem uh, programs get started, what are they like? How how did students and families handle lunch before those programs get started? And then what were those first programs like? Yeah, so um, the, the first uh, distinction to make is that this looks very different in cities than it does in rural areas. And and a lot of the reason for that is that the kind of urbanization that happened as a result of industrialization um, really changes the meal structures that, that families have. So in, in um, industrial cities, workers have a lot of the same challenges that uh, school kids have, like they're away from home, uh, you know, for at least, you know, the lunch hour and maybe for other meal times. Um, They may not have the ability to go back home and eat. And so a whole industry of uh, of restaurants and bakeries and corner stores and push carts and all sorts of other food purveyors kind of grows up to meet that Uh, meet that need. And it turns out that school kids take advantage of that as well. So kids in urban areas, one of the options they have is to just leave uh, school grounds and go to the local push cart, the local um, food stall, the local restaurant, bakery, saloon, etc., and purchase food. Many kids then, as now, of course, also brought food from home and a kind of sack lunch or a pail lunch of some sort. Um, and and those were generally the options. But a lot of kids also just went hungry if they uh, weren't able to go home for lunch or if they didn't have a, a, a parent at home, the so-called latchkey kids. Um, and if they didn't have enough money or didn't have money with them to uh, purchase something um, outside the school, then they often just didn't eat and they just had to kind of wait until some later point in the day, you know, to, to get anything to eat if, you know, if they could even do so then. Um for for, stu- for students uh, that attended rural schools, they obviously didn't have the option of a, of going to a local store that kind of thing because there there weren't there wasn't anywhere to go, um, and so they basically only had the option to bring food from home. Um, but they also faced the challenge of traveling much greater distances to get to school, um, often in uh, inclement conditions. Um, and so the 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 challenges of bringing food uh, from home, um, you know, potentially having to cart it, you know, uh, half an hour, an hour outside and, and, you know, freezing temperatures or things like that, and then get it to school where there was no refrigeration, no, uh, uh, you know, cooking implements or anything like that, and then somehow be able to eat it come lunchtime were, were real challenges. So this is sort of the... The, the, the space that uh, uh, um, uh, kids sort of faced when they, they started attending school at that time. And the early school um, 
uh, initiatives to address uh, this problem uh, start in the urban areas, and they involve uh, things like um, uh, from the simplest versions being like a milk program, or just sort of bringing milk into the school um, to uh, to sell to kids, so like penny bottles of milk and things like that. Um, often partnering with private charities so that they could uh, distribute free milk to to students who couldn't afford to pay for it. Um, and and things like that uh, sort of coexisted with much more built up programs that involved serving entire meals uh, to kids. Um, in rural areas, that was often much more challenging. And so the uh, solutions often um, involved a lot more sort of homeschool cooperation to um, uh, elicit uh, um, from parents the kinds of, of, of foods that could be brought to school and then uh, reheated or repurposed in some way to make a, a nourishing meal at the school. Yeah, and a lot of what you've described, you've already brought up like the immediate issue of of class differences, right? As soon as you bring food into the space or you have to have a meal, you know, we can tell the differences between people who have and people who don't. Um, so, you know, these lunch programs recognize that students who need a lunch program most are the least likely to be able to pay for it. And I think that's something that probably holds true through the whole history that you tell. Um, so maybe talk about some of those economics of school lunch. What are some of the the economic arguments for and against lunch programs? Yeah, so uh, the, the most basic economic arguments um, that uh, uh, proponents of school lunch programs uh, made in the early 20th century was that the costs associated with feeding kids in school were going to be a lot less than the costs of not doing so when they later had serious health or developmental problems, when they, uh, you know, were less competent workers, for example, because they were not as well educated as they could have been, uh, and so on and so forth. So there were a lot of um, uh, advocates of school lunches who argued that, you know, yes, it's going to cost us money to feed kids now, but that's going to be a lot cheaper than the costs of not doing so, essentially, the, 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 um, the uh, problems that uh, school lunches would solve um, would more than, than make up for the costs of solving them. Um, others argued that, you know, that wasn't the, 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 the that argument, you know, wasn't, uh, didn't hold, that really we had to convince families to take care of their kids and that if they weren't taking care of their kids that this is this is a problem that the state uh, should step in on and and you know this idea that you know uh, parents if they weren't uh, doing a good job of feeding their children needed to be compelled to do so um, and so that there, there's sort of that um, uh, economic argument to some extent the public health argument is an economic one as well right this idea that if kids who are, are better nourished will be less susceptible to disease and, and uh, you know, will develop, uh, you know, in, in healthier ways and that sort of thing is partly an economic argument as well, because it's also about sort of saving costs down the road in terms of, you know, hospitalizations and and and, and public health costs of, of caring for people who, uh, you know, will, will need more expensive care than they might otherwise have needed. Um, so, so those are kind of the... the um, the ways in which this was framed as an economic issue. Um, but it's also very clear, even in the, the early um, development of school lunch programs in cities and eventually in rural areas across the country, that most, um, most advocates still support um, what's effectively a capitalist model of 
lunches. There were certainly people people that argued for universal free meals, but um, even though a lot of people might have supported that, they often didn't push it because it would have been politically very difficult to uh, gain support for. And so instead, what they did was they argued for this sort of fee-for-service model that kids who could afford to pay for the food should do so. So they should purchase the food similarly to the way you would purchase a meal from a restaurant or a bakery or, 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 or you know, food food stall, um, but that students who uh, were too poor to do so could could uh, receive private charity, and then the school could basically be an instrument of, of dispersal of that charity. And a lot of schools, even in the very beginnings of the 20th century, were sensitive to the idea that, you know, kids who uh, were poorer, kids uh, who were needier, you know, uh, didn't want that to be widely known. Now, of course, most kids are going to know these things, but um, a lot of schools actually did institute um, policies or systems to try to try to um, prevent uh, that kind of um overt uh, uh, identification of poor kids by using sort of tickets or tokens that, you know, the paying kids could purchase themselves and, and kids receiving charity could just receive for free so that when they got to the lunch line, everybody paid with, you know, the same token or the same ticket. And, and it sort of was meant to be this kind of equalizer um, because, uh, you know, as long as this was going to be a kind of fee-for-service model, there was, there was still uh, concern that, uh, the the kids who needed it most, who were often the ones who were the poorest, um, not be shamed in the process of of receiving that charity. Yeah, and that conversation is definitely still ongoing, right? Yes, absolutely. So you know, anybody who's uh, been following uh, in the news, there's been a whole host of incidents around uh, what's termed lunch shaming um, in the, in the past several years, where um, uh, students who um, have unpaid lunch debts, because um, again, most schools still use some kind of system, the sort of 21st century equivalent of a ticket or a token to uh, to track um, meals and, and things like that. And, and often then, you know, there, there's a bill that gets sent to the home. And when those bills go unpaid, students rack up a, a certain amount of lunch debt. Now, in many cases, that debt is quite small. It might be 5 or $10 for a given student. Um, but for some students, it can get quite a bit larger um, if their families haven't, uh, haven't been paying their, um, their lunch bills. And um, so a lot of schools are now uh, in this position of sort of turning into these debt collection kind of agencies where, you know, they, they don't have operating budgets to just cover, uh, you know, those gaps. And so they have to now sort of go after parents for uh, for um, this uh, you know unpaid money, and it's created all kinds of problems in uh, schools where you know kids are given substitute meals like a, just a cold sandwich or something when they have uh, you know unpaid um, lunch debts or aren't even served uh, lunch. You know there was a an incident just um, I believe it was in Pennsylvania just. Uh, uh, um, a year ago, where the school sent letters home to all the the parents and the district who had um, unpaid school lunch bills, essentially threatening to um, uh, call child protective services, uh, you know, if uh, they, they weren't uh, taking care of this, and um, you know that uh, was sort of a, a major outlash towards uh, you know towards that um, uh, and a lot of media coverage of it. So, so there's a, a real 
problem right now in the way that uh, school lunches are administered in the U.S. because we don't have universal free meals and we do have these different systems. Um, it's putting schools in sort of this uh, position that uh, they have to sort of manage the finances of these programs in addition to uh, managing the logistics of, of feeding kids in schools. Right. So you offer these two very different case studies for comparison to really demonstrate how the school lunch program that we know today is really not inevitable, right? So you contrast Chicago's kind of full adoption and institutionalization of the school lunch in kind of the early 20th century with New York's kind of less enthusiastic reception, right? So they're, the both of these metropolitan areas kind of start out similarly, but then they take really different turns. So how does the school lunch initiative get started in Chicago? Who's responsible? What does it look like? Uh, and what are some of the challenges too and the successes of that Chicago model? Yeah. So the way this worked in Chicago is that the Board of Education partnered with um, a private organization that was composed of predominantly members of the city's women's clubs and other philanthropic organizations to uh, develop a trial meal program in just uh, uh, three of the schools. And they chose schools that were in sort of the poorest and neediest parts of the city um, and the idea was that this would be sort of a demonstration project, that if they could figure out a way to make it work in those schools, it could work really anywhere in the city, um, and that they could use that as a way to um, identify sort of how to work a, a program like this at, at a bigger scale. And eventually, the idea was to get it transferred all, you know, entirely into uh, you know the, the control of the Board of Education. Um, but of course, as I mentioned before, there were some some legal and practical uh, limitations on on um, how that could work. Um, but essentially, what uh, uh, what the city did was it divided the um, responsibilities or the the contributions to the lunch program between the school board and. Um, uh, the sort of private entity based on what the school board could reasonably spend uh, public money on. So it was relatively uncontroversial for a uh, school board to, for example, spend uh, money on um, equipping a, a kitchen or outfitting a, a, a cafeteria, dining hall, uh, you know, type thing. Um, they were generally able to provide like water and power and that sort of um, thing, you know, equipment, uh, cooking equipment and, and serving equipment, that sort of thing was relatively um, uh, uh, safe to spend public money on. Um, the problem, of course, is that the, the biggest expenses for a lunch program um, are by far uh, labor and the food itself. And so um, Typically, uh, those were the things that were supplied by uh, the, the private uh, organization, um, and 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 that was um, generally the case in Chicago. Labor was a bit of a um, uh, a gray area, you know, even in in, in uh, this case because obviously schools employed. Um, uh, people who did a wide range of tasks besides teaching, so custodial staff, for example. Um, and so, um, you know, sometimes some for some districts, they were able to hire a dietitian, but not necessarily cooks. You know, in other cases, it might be the other way around. Um, sometimes it could be both, sometimes neither. And so this this varied a little bit. But um, uh, but basically, no school district felt like they could directly purchase the food um, uh, for for these programs. And so um, so the 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 uh, the responsibilities then are sort of um, separated across these entities. 
Um, I should also note that some districts' uh, schools felt that they could purchase the food, but only if they recouped all the costs by uh, charging students for the meals. So, and that often would have made the meals prohibitively expensive for many of the uh, of the students. So they typically worked with um, the private uh, organizations to do f- food purchasing as well. Um, so Chicago, um, you know, is a is a good example of a city where there was. Um, a lot of support from the Board of Education. Um, they, uh, on a re- regular basis, the, the board would sort of um, push the limits of what they were legally allowed, often even exceeding them at times, um, sort of under the assumption that, you know, well, if nobody sues us, then we're just going to keep doing this. Um, and uh, um, in partnering with a private organization was really able to build out a pretty extensive uh, lunch service that um, gradually the board assumed more and more responsibility for until um, after a short while was able to basically take over entirely. Um, so uh, it was always a, a, a paid lunch um, in the sense that most students uh, purchased their meals and, and the receipts from those sales covered uh, you know, a lot of those costs that the, the board couldn't legally cover with public monies. Um, but it was an, it was really an example, sort of an ideal example in a lot of ways of how a, a school district um, with a cooperative board of education could develop an effective sort of public-private partnership um, and um, supply, you know, relatively healthy, uh, warm, um, uh, nutritious, full meals to uh, to a wide um, uh, proportion of the school age population in the city. Well, in addition to being warm and nutritious, the Chicago Lunch Program is also really responding to the diverse ethnic makeup of their student body. Uh, When I first wrote to you about doing this podcast, this was the question that most interested me was sort of American school lunches. Are they tools of assimilation and erasure or are they offering an education in diversity through cuisine? Uh, How did Chicago's lunches cater to those tastes and identities of their students? Yeah, so in Chicago, as in most, uh, you know, major American cities, um, you know, there were very large immigrant populations, um, you know, by the late 19th and certainly by the early 20th century, um, particularly immigrants from uh, Eastern Europe, Eastern European Jews in particular, um, uh, uh, Italians, um, Irish, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, there, there were major populations of uh, uh, not only major populations of immigrants, but they often um, settled in similar parts of the city. So you would often have entire neighborhoods that were predominantly uh, from the same ethnic groups. And so uh, since schools served uh, neighborhoods primarily, um, you know, a lot of them really attempted to adapt the meal programs to those communities. So, um, you know, in, a, in an Italian neighborhood, they might develop Italian menus and hire cooks from uh, those communities who could cook, uh, you know, foods the way that the the children would recognize them and appreciate them. Um, uh, schools in Jewish communities often had kosher menus and often had rabbis, you know, inspect the uh, kitchens and and uh, preparation uh, facilities and, and and that sort of thing to uh, to ensure that um, everything conformed with like the laws of kashrut and that sort of thing. Um, so there was a, a lot of attempt to um, uh, make sure that these were meals that students not only wanted to eat, but also could eat. Um, uh, many schools with uh, Catholic um, 
you know, a large Catholic populations had, you know, meatless, uh, uh, meatless um, meals on Fridays as well, things like that. And, you know, this, this really um, came from a, a variety of, uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, some of them uh, were pragmatic, right? I mean, if you, if your goal was to provide meals to students, they needed to eat those meals in order to get the nutritional benefits. And, and so you needed to be able to provide meals that they uh, could eat and were willing to eat. So, you know, it was partly a sort of pragmatic um, uh, element, but it was also, you know, in, in, certainly in the decades before World War One, there was also a certain um, uh, kind of uh, eclectic approach to the field of, of nutrition and, and dietetics and this idea that um, when it came to sort of practical nutrition, right, actually coming up with meals and, and things, uh, cooking techniques, and that sort of thing that maximized nutritive value and minimized cost, that um, it was sort of short-sighted if you only looked at sort of one uh, country's or one ethnic group's cooking traditions that we really needed to study this uh, much more holistically. And, and so, um, you know, the you know, Bureau of Education and various professional societies advocate that, you know, where there are um, large uh, populations of particular ethnic groups that their cooking practices and dietary practices should be studied because there might be things that could be learned from them that could be adapted and that sort of thing. It also emerged from the fact that these were programs that were really addressing needs on the ground in, in very specific local communities. And, and you know, very often the, um, the people who were instigating these programs were heavily involved in their local communities and they wanted to be able to help people uh, you know, modify their, their cooking or their diets or that kind of thing to improve their health. And that meant they had to understand those uh, communities reasonably well. They had to, to figure out how to help them, you know, for example, substitute cheaper alternatives for things that they were otherwise used to, to having that may not be as easily accessible now that they had moved to the United States and, and that sort of thing. Um, so the early programs were very much um, interested in, in developing meals that uh, the students could eat and that they would enjoy. Yeah. So in the next chapter, when you talk about New York's experiences, they kind of start out, again, very similarly, same legal challenges, same kind of private public partnerships. Uh, but what's so different about the New York model? Why doesn't the state take over and maintain what those charity organizations get started? Yeah. So uh, in New York, it really came down to a difference in the Board of Education. And you know, over the same time period in which Chicago's board was getting um, increasingly involved in, in school lunches, the New York Board of Education really never uh, uh, kind of adopted the idea that, that school lunches were something that a, that a board of education should uh, supervise or should provide. Um, they were basically fine with it being something that a private charity could come in and offer as a community service, but really didn't think that it was something that the public should should do and you know this is you know the, the case of New York is also interesting because plenty of other public uh, you know institutions felt like that was a service that the Board of Education should provide so the, you know the boards of uh, Board of Aldermen and the Board of Health in particular you know both really felt that this was an important public service and um, the Board of Education uh, really just never um, in that time period at least never, um, 
really adopted that as a as a guiding philosophy. And as a result, uh, you know, the that the same transition happens in New York with this sort of increasing move to get the lunches out of these sort of public-private partnerships or almost exclusively private um, and get them under Board of Education control. But when that happens in New York, the Board of Education really has no interest in running a program and, 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 and it suffers significantly as a result. Yeah, and you titled that chapter Menus for the Melting Pot, um, and you point out that those early lunch programs, like the ones in Chicago, kind of do plan their menus to respond to the the tastes and the cuisines of the diverse student populations. But after the Board of Education takes over, you know, they they choose not to do that. Um, why do you think they make that choice? What's the effect on students? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting question because it's actually hard to to, to tease out. Um, whether this was a local decision in the sense of something that was specific to New York or whether this was a result of what happened in a lot of cities you know, after World War One, when there's sort of the, the Red Scare and the sort of rise of of sort of um, anti-immigrant, uh, you know, sentiment, and you have, you know, the, the major political candidates are campaigning on sort of 100% Americanism and, and that kind of thing. Really, there's sort of a, a shift in, in attitude towards, um, immigrants and you know the so-called non-native Americans, um, and you know so that's sort of happening right at the same time, and it's not entirely clear whether you know it was just the general apathy of the, the Board of Education in New York that resulted in and shifting to a, a you know a, a more homogenous um, sort of blandly American kind of meal pattern that was less tailored to the, the different school populations, or whether this was reflecting something that was already sort of happening nationally um, and, and the sort of turning away from the kind of more melting pot approach and more towards a no, everyone needs to kind of assimilate and, and um, needs to, uh, uh, you know, eat like an American and speak like an American and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't, hadn't really put that timeline together. Uh, so after those two urban examples, you offer a history of the rural schools in a in a separate chapter. And there are some really ingenious kind of creative solutions going on there. Uh, but first, tell me a little bit about the archives that you drew on. How is it that we know what early 20th century rural school lunches were like? You know, where are those records kept? Yeah, uh, you know, it turns out that really any school lunch records are very, very hard to find prior to uh, federal involvement um, in in school meals. And some of that has to do with the fact that there were very few records kept. um, And likely many of the ones that were kept were probably not uh, uh, kept for very long. So they were probably, you know, destroyed shortly thereafter, much the way that we all, uh, you know, throw away or recycle our grocery lists and things like that. It just, there wasn't sort of a systematic you know, record keeping. And so for everything in this project, the research was extremely challenging because the the evidence is ex- extraordinarily fragmentary. And, and so to, to build a picture of what lunches looked like, whether it was in a city or, or in a rural area, I really had to kind of look at a lot of different kinds of sources. So there, there are archival sources here and there, often, um, uh, you know, sort of public archives where education records are kept or, um, uh, you know, sort of other official uh, records, you know, health reports and things like that uh, were kept. Sometimes I would get lucky and stumble across somebody's um, personal papers or letters or something where they might have talked about school lunches. Um, but because there was so little of that material, um, I relied very heavily on, 
you know, formal reports, so Board of Education reports, Board of Health reports, that kind of thing on newspapers, often the, the sort of closest I could get to a kind of um, lived experience was, was through um, newspaper reporting. Um, uh, there, there are some collections of school lunch materials, although very few of them in, uh, include materials from before the 1930s, which is when the federal government first gets involved. Um, and I also sort of had to, to, to go to sources that, you know, historians don't always use as regularly. So things like biography or autobiography and, um, even novels and, and literature and things like that to try and, and get a sense for, um, kind of lived experience of some of these things that otherwise aren't well documented. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about some of those creative solutions to you've already mentioned the you know the challenges of you know having to travel great distances, not a lot of infrastructure. Um, my favorite creative solution was the pint jar method. Uh, reminded me a lot of the Pinterest mason jar obsession today. Um, so what is the pint jar method? How did that work? Sure. So, uh, so rural schools, uh, unlike urban schools, uh, were very often just a single room with you know some very basic educational equipment and a heating stove. And so there wasn't really um, a model where the school could kind of bring in, uh, you know, a bunch of food and prepare meals and and distribute it to the kids. Um, You know, they didn't have the food cooking and preparation facilities. You know, some schools didn't even have a source of running water. So even water would have had to be uh, carted in and that sort of thing. Um, But they also had far smaller um, amounts of money to work with. So uh, then as now, uh, rural um, uh, schools just uh, had much smaller tax bases supporting them and education was much more disseminated. Um, And so uh, there was just very little money available to support something like that. So what most rural schools did was they tried to figure out ways to work with parents to... um, uh, have the parents send with their kids things that they could turn into uh, a a meal or, or at least would be more appetizing. So one of the problems that rural school kids had is that they mostly attended school in the the winter months, right? When there wasn't work on the farms and ranches and so on. And, or one, it wasn't as much work anyway. And, uh, you know, if they were going to take, say, a sandwich and other things, they'd pack them in a metal pail and haul them off to school. But it might take 30, 40, even 50, 60 minutes to get to school. So everything in that pail would be frozen solid by the time they got there. And the only way they had to thaw it out would be to put it somewhere near the heating stove, which, you know, was not exactly, as you can imagine, a great uh, defrosting system. <laughs> and so this is sort of the, the way, you know, the, 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 one of the big problems for, for kids is that they didn't really have a good way to bring um, food from home that would still be appetizing and edible four hours later. So the pint jar method was um, developed by a public health nurse in Wisconsin, occasionally called the Wisconsin method. Um, and what, um, uh, in, what it entailed was that uh, parents would pack for their um, children uh, a pint jar, you know, like a ma- just like a mason jar, like a canning jar, um, full of something that could be um, reasonably, you know, sort of frozen and reheated or at least heated up. So it could be like a soup or tapioca pudding or a rice dish of some sort, beans, things like that. They would bring it. And then to reheat them, a lot of schools didn't have 
cooking stoves or stoves even that had like a flat surface on them. So um, what the schools would do is they would make like a kind of wire rack that would allow um, placing a pan, a large like roasting pan style pan on top of the heating stove that they could then put a little bit of water in. And then using the same kind of racks that you use uh, in um, canning, they could put all these jars in there and in this like water bath. So they're basically creating a kind of water bath, steam bath. And then, you know, uh, about an, an hour before the lunch period, the teacher could just simply lift up this, you know, uh, big tray full of everybody's uh, pint jars, pop it on top of the stove. And then by lunchtime, everybody's uh, pint jar would have warmed up a little bit. Um, in most models, you know, this was sort of an individualized thing. Each student would um, just grab their own jar and then they would get to eat this, this now warm and appetizing meal um, a- as a result. But some schools also uh, took sort of more communal approaches where, you know, students would bring in uh, different things. They might bring in uh, produce or, or uh, meat or things like that from their, you know, um, family farms or ranches or gardens or things like that. And then they could assemble them into uh, some kind of uh, soup or stew or that kind of thing. Um, and then portion all that out into the pint jars and then cook it in the same way. So that was a little bit less common, but um, but there are definitely examples I was able to find of, of schools uh, taking that approach as well. Yeah, so the federal government intervenes in school lunch really for the first time, you know, through the depression of the 1930s and 40s as a part of those sweeping federal relief programs. Um, your chapter at this point kind of raises the intriguing question of relief for whom, right? So so it highlights a tension that you're going to continue, you continue to influence school lunch programs from then on, which is between the economic relief for the agricultural industry and nutritional aid and relief for hungry kids. Um, so maybe describe the origin of this tension. Yeah. So, you know, up until um, uh, the Depression, I basically have no reliable information on where the food came from um, in most school lunch programs. Um, you know, I have records on all sorts of things, but it's really hard to know uh, where the, the food was sourced from for a lot of lunch programs. You know, again, outside of these examples of, of rural kids just bringing their own food. Um, and so it's a little hard to, to know sort of how agriculture fit in the, the beginning part of that story. But certainly when the Depression strikes and the federal government starts to become involved in, in financing meal programs as a sort of general um, hunger relief effort, they do so in part because uh, financing um, uh, or supporting school meal programs is also a way to support the agricultural economy, which was in dire straits at that point. Um, there was already a pretty severe agricultural depression in the 20s um, as a result of falling prices after World War One and after sort of uh, you know, European agriculture gets uh, back up and running, um, but it, it deepens considerably in the early 30s. And so what happens is that, um, uh, you know, prices of many agricultural products fall uh, so far that um, essentially it will cost, cost farmers more to produce the food than they can sell it for. And so you have what's, you know, many uh, historians have termed the paradox of plenty that, you know, you have farms that are producing at record rates, 
um, all over the country um, while you have people starving in, uh, you know, uh, nearby areas because uh, those farms couldn't actually afford to harvest and market their produce for, for what they could sell it for. And so the federal government sees school lunches as a kind of demand side solution to the farm program that they can buy up you know, excess agricultural surplus, thus stabilizing, uh, far, you know, stabilizing um, agricultural prices, product prices, and then they can distribute that food to uh, to the schools, um, which will then address some of the issues of hunger and malnourishment. So it's sort of a, a win-win that, you know, an investment in stabilizing the agricultural economy also can benefit, um, you know, hungry school kids. Um, the problem with with that approach, and, and there were many, um, was that uh, you know in theory that sounds great, but in practice it's actually very hard to align those two things. Um, so from year to year, the the agricultural products that were in significant surplus and thus would you know severely drive down prices if it all went to uh, market uh, were variable. So one year you know you might have uh, too much pork, and the next year you might have. Um, you know, just the right amount of pork, but too much corn and so on and so forth um, due to variations in productivity and weather events and and a whole host of other factors. Um, So that meant that that there was never really a steady supply um, to schools. On top of that, the schools had to um, have the machinery to receive these uh, donations or effectively donations and then do something with it. So, you know, one day they might just get crates and crates of potatoes, but they can't just disseminate potatoes to all the, the students and expect that that's going to uh, address, you know, the, uh, the sort of need for um, meals. They, they needed to have facilities to prepare meals. They needed to have people who could do it. Um, and the WPA helped to address the labor side and to some extent the equipment side. But uh, that was a real challenge for a lot of schools that they just didn't have that uh, that infrastructure. Um, and storage was could be a real problem as well if there were things like fresh produce uh, that they had to use or, or be able to, to store effectively that they may not have the, the capacity to do so. So this this was uh, definitely uh, a benefit to uh, the agricultural sector, but um, it was a lot more difficult for uh, for schools to uh, utilize that surplus produce than than I think was often assumed. Yeah. So in addition to the surplus food, they also receive workers, right, through the WPA. Are there other New Deal agencies that were involved in delivering school lunch before there's this official National School Lunch Act? Uh, yeah. As far as I know, the, the, that's sort of the main one. So that that's Schools get surplus commodities through, uh, um, you know, what's effectively an arm of, of the USDA, um, and they, uh, you know, can can apply for uh, labor support from um, the WPA. And you know, one of the sort of astounding things I found out, you know, as I was doing the, the research for this, was that you know, at one point in time, twenty percent of the workers that were employed by the WPA were employed in school lunch programs. Um, which is, is is amazing when you think about it. That one in five WPA workers. You now we hear all about the rural electrification projects and the building projects and even the arts programs and things. And and I don't think I'd ever run across that before. But but it's really astonishing how much of the WPA was oriented towards helping schools feed kids. Um, and so there's this massive workforce that's that's um, uh, employed to to do that. And that definitely is a major benefit for schools because most of the schools that participated in the 
Commodity Redistribution Program were also participating in the WPA uh, labor program. Um, To my knowledge, those are the only uh, uh, New New Deal programs that directly um, affected uh, school meals. There may have been some indirect effects of other financial programs and that sort of thing. But, um, but, you know, when you think about it, as I mentioned before, right, the cost of food and the cost of labor are are the two biggest uh, barriers. So for lunch program, effectively, this was a case of the federal government taking away or at least reducing, uh, you know, two of the most significant barriers to offering meals. And as a result, a lot more schools ha- uh, developed school lunch programs in the 1930s um, than had previously done so, because uh, now it's it's possible for schools that didn't have the, the financial resources to do so. It's now possible um, to develop these programs. Well, I was surprised to find out that the like the National School Lunch Act that sets the precedent for school lunch as we know it today wasn't passed until 1946. So when your next chapter focuses on the debate over that act um, and the kind of two competing bills um, that were under um, kind of scrutiny there. So again, another moment that makes clear that school lunch as we know it was not an inevitability. Um, what were some of the competing interests and ideologies in those those two bills? Describe those two sides and kind of who won at the end. Yeah, so essentially what happens is that, you know, all, all of these programs that are started during the Depression were, were designed to be relief efforts. They were never really designed to be uh, permanent. So, you know, the WPA, uh, you know, shutters in the early 1940s. And, and a lot of these, you know, programs, politicians start saying, well, you know, like the Depression, we're kind of moving out of the Depression. We, we you know, we, we aren't, we can continue spending money on these expensive uh, relief efforts. But yeah, uh, you know, school lunches was one of those things that was just so popular, and um, that you know, representatives uh, uh, received so many letters and and communications from their constituents about how much they like the school lunch programs that uh, that um, uh, you know, Congress basically pursues uh, you know um, a, a permanent legislation to support school meals moving forward. Um, now that. Uh, you know, uh, what, what happens then at that point is that there's a debate about how that should be done. So, you know, there's, there's a pretty strong feeling that there should still be some linkage between uh, school meal programs and um, agricultural um, price support. So this idea of linking the needs of producers and consumers remains a strong one. And again, in, in principle, it seems to make sense. Um, but uh, there's debate, right? So, uh, you know, on one side, there are politicians arguing that really this should be a program managed by, uh, you know, the Department of Education. It's it's in schools. It's about, uh, you know, uh, students' um, health in schools and education, and, and it makes sense for the Department of Education to run it. On the other hand, you had... Uh, politicians who argued that, well, really, it made more sense for the Department of Agriculture to run these programs, because as long as they were going to be, you know, connected with these agricultural support measures, it made sense to have all of that under one roof and not have sort of part of the program with the USDA and part of it with, um, uh, you know, the um, Department of Education. And so that was one, uh, you know, point of contention was, you know, which federal agency should oversee um, the program. There were uh, um, debates over whether there should be an educational provision in the bill, right? Should schools that participated in a federal school lunch program be required to provide nutritional education and and, uh, nutrition health education as a a 
as a part of their participation, or should there be, you know, no educational component? And, you know, this was a a significant debate. In particular, at this time, um, there really wasn't much precedent for federal involvement in education, Um, just like health. That was something that was generally believed to be the purview of the states, and the federal government generally stayed out of it, except in very special cases. And so, that, there was that debate. Um, but the other thing that, that really arose over the co- course of the 30s as the federal government became involved was also the issue of discrimination. Um, and so because uh, during the relief efforts, a lot of things were uh, uh, given to states initially, excess produce and eventually um, cash indemnities um, were given to the states and then the states determined how to distribute them. As you can imagine, there was... Um, a lot of discrimination in how those uh, things were were uh, distributed, and um, research showed that um, that, for example, black communities, black schools, uh, or or um, uh, you know uh, Hispanic schools received far far fewer um, of those resources than white schools, even though they were often um, in in most need. Um, and so uh, you know, there's a, a major debate in Congress. Uh, in the 1940s, uh, when um, attempting to pass legislation about whether there should be anti-discrimination language in um, in the legislation that that gets uh, uh, to be passed uh, to ensure that um, you know the the money that coming from the federal government is equitably um, distributed, and and there are a host of other. Um, Issues that come up when, uh, you know, when Congress starts to really seriously consider um, uh, 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 permanent school lunch legislation. Um, and as you know, anyone who's read the book and, and or know, who knows anything about the history knows, right, none, essentially to get the bill passed, um, the proponents of a lot of those stipulations basically capitulate and they, they scrub the bill of any anti-discrimination language. They remove all of the educational, uh, you know, components. They, um, you know, uh, concede to having the Department of Education, uh, you know, manage the program, even though, um, you know, there's a significant conflict of interest in having one department oversee, uh, you know, the interests of both producers and consumers, which are not necessarily uh, well aligned. Um, and all of these concessions are made to try and get the bill passed, essentially, like to try and get any amount of permanent support uh, for school lunches. So it's in the end, it is um, a sort of capitulation on the, the, the side of the, the sort of ardent school lunch advocates who really wanted this to be a comprehensive health and social welfare program. And they, they really trade away a lot of um, their uh, goals in exchange for just getting any permanent federal money that supports uh, school meal programs. Yeah. So in your conclusion, you, you talk about school lunch as we know it today. Uh, what are some of the more recent concerns or initiatives in school lunch? It's been updated since that act, correct? Yeah. So there've been a number of updates to the, the National School Lunch Program, um, you know, over its uh, 70 plus year history. Um, but most of those updates have been uh, sort of basic administrative um, uh, adjustments and, you know, um, uh, you know, there was eventually some, you know, anti-discrimination, um, very weak anti-discrimination language put in and, you know, things like that. It was sort of uh, tweaked and nudged, but the sort of core model really didn't change much over its first uh, almost 70 years. Um, but the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, which is 
passed in was passed in 2010, and then you know it went fully into effect in 2012. Um, introduced some of the first sort of um, major structural changes to how the the program actually operates. And one of the biggest ones was the introduction of community eligibility, which basically stipulated that if more than um, I believe it's 40%, I'd have to double check, but if more than 40% of uh, the students in a school would qualify individually for free meals, then the whole school qualifies for free meals or district. Um, and what that does is that it means that it substantially reduces the amount of paperwork um, that schools need to uh, need to produce in order to provide free meals, but it also significantly increases the number of, of students who benefit from the program because you don't any longer have uh, children who fall through the cracks because they just didn't get you know, their qualification paperwork in or there was a problem with it or something along those lines. And then uh, as a result, they didn't qualify for free meals, even though they should have. Um, and so that was a, a you know sort of a major, uh, major change and a lot of cities um, uh, now have uh, universal free meals in, in part as a result of that. Some of them have passed their own uh, legislations of some states or, or municipalities have passed their own legislation to provide universal free meals. Um, but in many cases, they, they can simply just uh, 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 use the community eligibility program. And, and so that's been a, a significant benefit um, the recent legislation also uh, required stricter nutrition standards, although those standards are still set by the USDA, which means that they are um, sensitive to changes in administration. Um, and, you know, one of the, the things that, uh, you know, the USDA did under Trump was to roll back some of the stricter nutrition standards that the USDA had, had um, constructed under the Obama administration. Um, uh, you know, and, and among other things, the bill also, uh, you know, did... Um, uh, do some administrative updates, you know, increasing reimbursement rates and that kind of thing. It does have a nutrition education provision, although it is a fairly uh, uh, soft one and there does not appear to be a, a significant um, uh, you know, system for actually, you know, vetting that that's taking place and, and, and that sort of thing. But um, it's definitely, um, you know, the first time that a lot of the things that early reformers really wanted, um, you know, from the school lunch program are, are, are now incorporated into it, in, at least in some form. So you're a historian of school lunch now, but I might ask you to talk about the future of school lunch. Um, in your last line of the book, you you quote, and I'll quote it back to you, uh, history suggests that without development of a system that integrates eating and learning, that values skilled labor and community involvement, and that privileges children's health over agricultural protection, malnourishment will continue to be our greatest producer of ill health. Uh, so maybe unpack that last line for me. What do we need to do to make school lunch live up to its best ambitions? Yeah, so I mean, I, th I think there are a few uh, sort of key areas where where we can we could do some some real improvement. Um, you know, so one of them is that you know I think we are moving towards you know the idea of just universal free lunches, right? So forgetting about qualifications or uh, you know anything like that, but just providing meals to students and schools is uh, is a popular enough uh, idea and there's enough research you know to, to, to back that it's uh, an effective uh, um, uh, use of, of resources that I think you know we're increasingly moving kind of in that direction and, and that would be a real big step forward um, for school lunch programs 
Um, but there are still some logistic uh, challenges that I think are are going to be a little bit um, harder to tackle in some ways. So one of them is is the the challenge that many large schools face, and that their facilities were not built for the size of the student bodies that they have. Um, and, and this creates a, a different kind of problem. Um, so, for example, imagine you have uh, a school that has, you know, 2,000 students, um, but a cafeteria that has a maximum capacity of 400. That means that you basically need five different lunch periods in order to feed all the students uh, in the school, um, which, which you know, gives you... Um, uh, you know, basically two options, neither of which is very good. You can have a nice, long, relaxing lunch period, but some kids will have to have lunch at 9.30 in the morning and some at 2.30 in the afternoon. Um, or you have to compress the lunch period down to a very short amount of time, which is what most schools end up doing, where, you know, students might only have 20 minutes to get to the cafeteria, get their food, eat it, and then be back in class because then the next, you know, the next wave of students has to come through. Um, and that's a much more difficult problem to solve because it's an infrastructural one and it's one that many, many schools um, are facing. And so the sort of short lunch period problem is a, is a, is a very significant one um, and there's no, not going to be an easy solution to it. Um, and, and so I think you know, that's something where some significant, uh, you know, there are some significant challenges and, and there may need to be some rethinking about, uh, you know, how, how we get food to, to, to kids in schools and how we ensure that they can get it at, a, at an appropriate time, but also have enough time to relax and enjoy and eat that food um, and, and not uh, have to do so in an incredibly uh, rushed and, and pressurized atmosphere. Um, and, you know, I think there's still uh, a long way to go in terms of integrating uh, school meal programs into, uh, you know, sort of the broader curriculum. There's certainly a lot more schools who are starting to do that. You know, they're doing things like uh, school gardens and, and you know, drawing connections uh, that way, uh, integrating um, food and agricultural topics into traditional curricula um, and so on and so forth. But but there are still some significant uh, um challenges there as well. Uh, school gardens are much more likely to be found in wealthier uh, and wealthier schools, in part because um, they often take a lot of volunteer labor to, to manage them and maintain them. Um, and, you know, for, uh, you know, students um, uh, from communities, you know, and often this is, you know, um, Black students uh, and, you know, Latinx students and that sort of thing, um, uh, you know, there is a very fine line between something that is an enriching educational practice and something that is an exploitative labor practice. And so um, something like a school garden can be um, a very difficult sell in, in communities that don't feel like they've been, uh, you know, well supported in, in the past and can will often regard a program like that as simply putting their kids to work rather than uh, educating them in the way they feel they should be educated. Um and so, you know, there are real challenges in terms of making uh, uh, school lunches themselves equitable, but also integrating them into a larger uh, curriculum on foods and nutrition in a way that doesn't exacerbate, um, uh, you know, sort of prior um, uh, uh, sort of uh, social fault lines or sort of disenfranchisement that a lot of communities are continuing to face. And it's even worsening in many places. Well, I appreciate how your book has really pointed out a lot of those complexities that I think get a little bit lost in how deeply ingrained the lunch has become in our popular culture. It's sort of a, an invisible 
uh, an invisible place. So thank you for kind of bringing our attention to that. Um, finally, my book came with a golden ticket inviting me to go to lunch with you. Uh, so when can we have lunch? And tell me about this golden ticket idea. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, as I was uh, finishing the book manuscript, uh, I uh, yeah, I really wanted to do like something with the you know like the acknowledging. You know, there's always the sort of obligatory acknowledgments you put in like an academic work, and and you know, as I wanted to make sure to acknowledge everybody who had contributed to this book, and there were as always many people, but I also wanted to do something a, a little bit fun with it, and so I sort of building on the kind of Willy Wonka idea, I thought you know it would be funny if there was a, a little golden ticket that sort of showed up in some books that entitled somebody to something that I could actually afford to give them, you know, <laughs> and so uh, I came up with this idea of, you know, sort of like a free lunch with the author. There was a book about lunch and that, you know, you might win this, you know, this, uh, this ticket for a, a lunch with me. And so it, be, it was sort of this kind of joke thing that my, my publisher uh, actually really liked. Um, so, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't able to distribute them quite as randomly as I had hoped, but I've, I've done my best to kind of just stick them in, in random copies of, of, of the book and sort of send them out into the world. And then nobody has yet taken me up on their, their free lunch, but I'm, I'm still sort of waiting for the, the first person who uh, who takes me up on it. Well, I'll find you in Wisconsin, and certainly some of our listeners will will be close by. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, what project are you working on next? Oh, that is a great question. So, uh, so far, I've uh, I've mostly avoided tackling anything quite this big. Um, I, I've mostly been working on... Uh, 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 as as a historian of food and nutrition, and, and in particular public health nutrition, one of the things that I've always been um, interested in is how um, nutrition as a field was this sort of um, very amorphous uh, uh, area where even the, the sort of definition of what nutrition was changes substantially multiple times over, over the last several centuries. So uh, the work I've been doing lately has been mostly around trying to understand what we mean when we talk about nutrition. Um, and I've sort of started by looking at that mostly from sort of the professional communities that, that uh, engage in nutrition. So nutritionists, dietitians, uh, you know, laboratory researchers, physicians and, and nurses and public health experts and that sort of thing. Um, but I'm hoping to sort of expand that out to, to really start thinking, you know, more broadly about, you know, really, what do we mean, you know, when we, when we, when we talk about nutrition and how does that affect the way that we develop uh, policies and practices around um, things like uh, eating and dietetics and, and, and nutritional health more generally. Yeah. So another sort of naturalized institution that you can um, kind of reveal the construction of. Yep. That's exactly. the idea. That's great. Well, we've been talking to Andrew Ruiz about his new book, Eating to Learn, Learning to Eat, The Origins of School Lunch in the United States, uh, published by Rutgers University Press. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Carrie. I really enjoyed it as well. 